was Walter Cronkite at CBS TV News, Project Mercury headquarters on Cape Canaveral. The Redstone rocket is ready, the Mercury capsule is ready, Commander Alan Shepard, our astronaut, is ready, the weather is good, and it is 10 minutes to launch time. The Redstone stands there with Shepard in the Mercury capsule atop it. The weather has cleared considerably after earlier problems with it, but now everything is in readiness, and it is T minus nine, nine minutes before this first attempt to put a man into space by the United States is scheduled to blast off. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 25 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now... Mercury Redstone 3, Freedom 7, with Alan Shepard. Over 52 years ago, in the early hours of May 5, 1961, the U.S. prepared to launch its first man into space. Three weeks earlier, the Soviet Union had launched Yuri Gurganin on an orbital mission. This was a suborbital mission planned to last only 15 minutes. For the moment, that did not matter. The entire nation held its breath while Alan Shepard became America's first man in space. The flight was really nothing more than von Braun's Project Adam, which had been dismissed in 1958 as a circus stunt. The concept had nevertheless survived to become an element of Mercury, and for the same reason that Eisenhower had turned to the same Redstone booster that launched Explorer 1. The Redstone was available, it was ready, and it could support launches of some importance well before the Atlas booster would become available. The Mercury Redstone 3 spacecraft was the seventh Mercury capsule. It was delivered to Cape Canaveral on December 9, 1960. It had originally been expected that a mission could be launched soon after the spacecraft was available. But capsule number seven turned out to require extensive development and testing work before it was deemed safe for flight. However, as it had been earmarked since the summer as the first crewed spacecraft, the decision was taken to delay the mission until this particular capsule was ready, with a tentative launch date of March 6th. The booster originally intended for the flight, Redstone number three, had been delivered to the Cape in early December. However, it was then used on the MR-1A test flight, the one we covered last week in episode 24. The replacement redstone did not arrive at the Cape until late March, and by that time the mission had already been postponed to await the results of another test flight. The pilot for Mercury Redstone 3 had been chosen in early January of 1961 by the head of the program, Robert R. Gilruth. He selected Alan Shepard as the primary pilot with John Glenn and Gus Grissom as his backups. The other members of the Mercury 7 continued to train for later missions. The three names were announced to the press on February 22nd without any indication as to which of the three was expected to fly the mission. Shepard's name was only announced publicly after the initial launch attempt had been canceled, as Gilruth wished to keep his options open in the event that last-minute personnel changes were required. 
Glenn served as Shepard's backup on launch day, with Grissom focusing on training for Mercury Redstone 4, the next suborbital mission. It was Shepard who gave the mission its alternative name, Freedom 7. Seven was a reference to the seven astronauts that made up the Mercury program. This established a trend of astronauts naming their spacecraft for the rest of the Mercury program, and all the capsules named would end in the number seven. At 1.30 a.m. on the morning of May 5, 1961, Shepard and his backup, fellow astronaut John Glenn, met at breakfast in the Cape Canaveral crew quarters, Hangar 6. Both were clad in bathrobes. They subsequently parted to dress. Glenn headed out to the pad number 5 to check Freedom 7, while Shepard underwent his pre-flight examination performed by Air Force physician Bill Douglas. Four electrocardiograph pads were attached to his chest, a respirometer to his neck, and a rectal thermometer to gauge deep body temperatures. Next came a set of long underwear, complete with spongy pads to help air circulation. Finally, he squeezed into his silver space suit, securing zips and connectors and checking his briefcase-like air conditioning unit. The air conditioning unit was essential. By the time Shepard was ready, he was sweating profusely and breathing hard. One unusual feature of the suit was that the fingers of its gloves were deliberately curved to permit the grasping of controls, and its middle finger was straight to enable Shepard to push buttons and flip toggles. To precisely tailor the suits, engineers had taken body molds of the astronauts, dressing them in long underwear, covering them with brown paper tape, and cutting the resultant mold. When inflated, the spacesuit only took one shape, and any change to this shape, for example by walking or trying to sit, forced the astronaut to exert himself to overcome the increased pressure. A few minutes before 4 a.m., fellow astronaut Virgil Gus Grissom accompanied Shepard in the transport van to a floodlit pad number 5, where technician Joe Smith fitted the gloves and Gordon Cooper briefed him on the countdown status. Meanwhile, at the top of the gantry inside the cramped Freedom 7 capsule, John Glenn had spent almost two hours checking the readiness of each switch and instrument. At 5.15 a.m., Shepard ascended the elevator to reach a green-walled room at the 20-meter level. The room was nicknamed the Greenhouse. It surrounded the capsule's hatch. After much huffing and puffing, the astronaut was inserted into his specially contoured couch. Shepard's first action was to chuckle aloud, for Glenn had put a girl pinup and a placard which read, No handball playing in this area. It was very unlike Glenn, who was normally considered a straight arrow and not a prankster. Shepard quickly pulled it down. Joe Smith, who suited and booted astronauts for more than two decades, remembered securing Shepard with straps across his shoulders, chest, laps, knees, and even toes. Finally, Glenn reached in, shook his gloved hand, and wished him good luck. The hatch was closed at 6.10 a.m. By his own admission, Shepard's heart rate quickened. 
Launch was scheduled for a little after 7 a.m., but this was soon delayed as banks of clouds rolled over Florida's southeastern seaboard. Then, one of the power inverters to Freedom 7's Redstone booster exhibited problems. The countdown clock was recycled to T-35 minutes, and after an 86-minute delay, began counting once again. Next came an error with one of the computers at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, which was responsible for processing the mission data. By the time this problem had been overcome, Shepard had been lying on his back for over three hours. Finally, a more personal problem arose. Not only was it uncomfortable to be lying inside the cramped capsule, but combined with the orange juice and coffee from breakfast, it required Shepard to urinate. Quote, Man, I gotta pee. End quote. He finally radioed to Gordon Cooper, stationed in the nearby control blockhouse. Shepard continued, quote, Check and see if I can get out and relieve myself. End quote. No one had planned for this eventuality. With only 15-minute fl- flight scheduled, it had not been anticipated that Shepard would be in Freedom 7 for long enough to feel the urge. Still, Cooper passed the request up the chain of command to Werner von Braun, the head of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. The response was immediate and emphatic. In a thick German accent, von Braun reported, No, the astronaut shall stay in the nosecone. An exasperated Shepard warned that he would urinate in his suit if he could not get outside. Managers were then concerned that the urine might short-circuit the medical wiring and electrical thermometers in his suit. Finally, Cooper confirmed that the power had been temporarily switched off shortly thereafter a drawn-out emerged from the astronaut in the capsule as the warm fluid pooled in the small of his back. It was now almost 9 a.m., Two minutes remained on the countdown. Then another halt was called. Pressures inside the Redstone's liquid oxygen tank had climbed unacceptably high. NASA had two options. It could either reset the pressure valves, which would necessitate a launch scrub, or bleed off some of the pressure by remote control. An irritable shepherd, after almost four hours on his back, and now lying in dried-up urine, obviously preferred the second option. He radioed. I'm cooler than you are, he barked. Why don't you fix your little problem and light this candle? Those final three words have since gained immortality. Finally, a little after 9.30 a.m., the clock resumed, and the television networks commenced their live coverage. By this time, Cooper had been replaced by astronaut Deke Slayton, who would be in contact with Freedom 7 during the flight. TV networks showed the liftoff and provided the live coverage that would quickly become standard in the U.S. This meant that everyone was watching, an estimated 45 million. If it had blown up, much of the world would have seen it. Across the country, highways traffic thinned as motorists pulled to the side of the road to listen to the radio. The immediacy of the coverage captured everyone's attention because there was a man on top of that rocket. At T-minus 30 seconds, the umbilical cable supplying electricity, communications, and liquid oxygen 
automatically separated from the redstone as planned. Shepard's pulse quickened from 80 to 126 beats per minute. His hand tightened on the capsule's abort handle, and in his mind he repeated over and over an early incarnation of the astronaut's prayer. He had been inside Freedom 7 for over four hours, and the delays alone had cost three and a half hours. That was long enough to have flown his mission 14 times. But now it seemed that all was ready. We approach the final moments of the countdown here. The other astronauts are being used in this particular exercise. Marine Lieutenant Colonel John Glenn is in standby. He's at the Mercury Control Center. Captain Leroy Cooper is in the blockhouse. Major Donald Slayton, Captain Virgil Grissom are both in Mercury Control. Lieutenant Commander Scott Carpenter and Lieutenant Commander Walter Shira both are up in the air flying F-106 chase planes, one of them at 25,000 feet, the other at 5,000 feet, preparing to follow the capsule in its flight and, of course, spot it as it lands. Now, for the final few seconds, as this countdown progresses, again, Merrill Muller. We're in the final count now. The Freon coolant inside the capsule has been cut off. It is now automatically isolated from the rest of the atmosphere as its own. The test conductor in the space control center has taken over. Automatic reports now start on the, on the pilot. The the umbilical cord from the redstone rocket. It is now almost independent. The vent should be closed in five seconds. The periscope is okay. Test it out. That's the capsule periscope. The vents are being closed. I can see the vapor slowly disappearing. T minus 15 seconds. T minus 10. T minus 10 seconds. 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Ignition. We can see the ignition. The rocket is beginning to rise agonizingly slowly. The astronaut has turned on his clock. And here we go. MR-3 finally lifted off at 9.34 a.m. Eastern Time. Shepard radioed. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is starting. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. T plus 16 seconds. MR-3 pitches over 2 degrees per second from 90 to 45 degrees. T plus 23 seconds. Shepard radios. This is Freedom 7. The fuel is go 1.2 G. Kevin at 14 PSI. Oxygen is go. T plus 40 seconds. End of the pitch program. Redstone reaches 45 degrees. T plus 1 minute 24 seconds. Max Q. The maximum dynamic pressure is reached. Shepard reports. T-plus, 2 minutes, 20 seconds. The Redstone's engine shut down. Shepard was subjected to a maximum acceleration of 6.3 G just before the Redstone engine shut down. Freedom 7's velocity was 5,134 miles per hour, close to what was planned. 
T plus 2 minutes, 22 seconds. The escape tower is jettisoned. Shepard reports. T plus 2 minutes 24 seconds. Posigrade rockets fire for 1 second separating the capsule from the booster. T plus 2 minutes 37 seconds. Spacecraft rotates 180 degrees to heat shield forward attitude. The nose is pitched down 34 degrees to retro fire position. Shepard reports the automatic system called ASCS is okay. T plus 3 minutes 10 seconds, Shepard was now able to take manual control of the spacecraft and began testing whether he was able to adjust its orientation. The first thing he did was position the spacecraft to its retro attitude of 34 degrees pitch. He then tested the manual control of yaw, which is motion from left to right, and roll. When he took control of all three axes, he found that spacecraft response was about the same as that of the Mercury simulator. However, he could not hear the jets firing as he could on the ground due to the high level of background noise. Shepard reported, Okay, switching to manual pitch. That's manual pitch. This is okay. Switching to manual yaw. I understand, manual yaw. Roger, three and okay. Yaw is okay. Switching manual roll. Uh, it's manual roll. Roll is okay. The mission's secondary objective was to make observation of the ground from space. Returning the spacecraft to automatic control, Shepard found that he was able to distinguish major land masses from clouds easily and could make out coastlines, islands, and major lakes, but he had difficulty identifying the cities. Shepard reported. On the periscope, what a beautiful view. I'll cover over Florida, three to four tenths near the eastern coast. Obscure is up through Hatteras. Five, you can see Okeechobee. Identify Andros Island. Identify the reefs. Right. T plus 5 minutes, Apergy is reached at 115 miles. T plus 5 minutes, 14 seconds, three retro rockets fire for 10 seconds each. They are started at 5 second intervals, firing overlaps. Velocity is decreased 550 feet per second. T plus 5 minutes, 45 seconds, the periscope is automatically retracted in preparation for re-entry. T plus 6 minutes 15 seconds, a problem occurs. Having completed its job, the retro pack is jettisoned, but the confirmation light failed, requiring Shepard to activate the manual override for the jettisoned system. Here's the conversation. Roger, do not have a light. Understand you do not have a light? I do not have a light. I see the straps falling away. I heard a noise. I will use override. Override used, the light is green. Uh, 
T plus 6 minutes 20 seconds, ASCS Orient spacecraft in the 34 degrees nose down pitch, 0 degrees roll, 0 degrees yaw. T plus 7 minutes 15 seconds, ASCS detects the beginning of reentry and rolls the spacecraft at 10 degrees per second to stabilize during reentry. T plus 8 minutes, Shepard reports increasing G load, 3, 6, 9, Shepard kept control until the G-forces peaked at 11.6 during re-entry. He held the capsule until it had stabilized and then relinquished control to the automatic system. Descent was faster than anticipated. T-plus, 9 minutes 38 seconds. The drogue parachute was deployed at 22,000 feet, slowing descent to 365 feet per second. T-plus, 9 minutes 45 seconds. Fresh air snorkel deploys at 20,000 feet. The automatic system switches to emergency oxygen rate to cool the cabin. T-plus, 10 minutes, 15 seconds. Main parachute deploys at 10,000 feet. Descent rate slows to 30 feet per second. T-plus, 10 minutes, 20 seconds. Landing bag deploys, dropping heat shield down 4 feet. Remaining hydrogen peroxide fuel is automatically dumped. T-plus, 11 minutes, 20 seconds. At 7,000 feet, with the main chute deployed, Shepard reports his condition. T-plus, 13 minutes, 5 seconds. At 4,000 feet, Shepard again reports his status. T-plus, 15 minutes, 22 seconds. Splashdown. Freedom 7 lands in the water about 300 miles downrange from the Cape. Splashdown occurred with an impact comparable to landing a jet aircraft on an aircraft carrier. Freedom 7 tilted over on its right side about 60 degrees from an upright position but did not show any signs of leaking. It took about a minute for the capsule to right itself. T-plus 15 minutes 30 seconds. Rescue aid package was deployed. The package included a green dye marker recovery radio beacon, and a whip antenna. A recovery helicopter arrived after a few minutes, and after a brief problem with the spacecraft antenna, the capsule was lifted partly out of the water in order to allow Shepard to leave by the main hatch. He squeezed out of the door and into a sling hoist and was pulled into the helicopter, which flew both the astronaut and his spacecraft to a waiting aircraft carrier, the USS Lake Champlain. The whole recovery process had taken only 11 minutes from splashdown to arriving aboard. Following the flight, the spacecraft was examined by engineers and found to be in excellent shape. 
so much so that they decided it could have been safely used again in another launch. In his post-flight debriefing recorded an hour later aboard the Lake Champlain, Shepard acquiesced that his suit inlet temperature changed and may have affected one of his chest sensors, but his comfort was much improved. The urine was absorbed by his long cotton underwear and quickly evaporated in the 100% pure oxygen atmosphere of the cabin. Thankfully, the astronaut received no electric shocks and NASA was spared the humiliation of having to report that America's first space traveler had been electrocuted by his own urine. Three days later, Shepard was awarded NASA's Distinguished Service Medal by President Kennedy. Here's an audio clip of the ceremony. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to express uh, on behalf of us all the great pleasure we have in welcoming Commander Shepard and Mrs. Shepard here today. I know that the uh, other members of this team who are astronauts know uh, that our pride in them is equal. They have been part of this effort from the beginning, and I think it does uh, credit to him that he is associated with such a distinguished group of Americans, whom we are all glad to honor today, his uh, companions in the uh, flight to outer space. So I think we'll give them all a hand. They are the tanned and healthy ones. The others are Washington uh, employees. <laughs> I also want to again express my congratulations uh, to Alan Shepard. Uh, we're uh, very proud of him. And I speak on behalf of uh, the vice president, who is chairman of our space council and who bears great responsibilities in this field, the members of the House and Senate Space Committee who are with us today. And... Uh, this decoration, which has gone from the ground up here. <laughs> Kennedy also said, quote, I also want to pay particular tribute to some of the people who worked on this flight. Robert Gilruth, director of the Space Task Force at Langley Field, Walter Williams, the Operations Director of Project Mercury, the NASA Deputy Administrator, Dr. Hugh Dryden, Lieutenant Colonel John H. Glenn, Jr., and, of course, James Webb, who is head of NASA. Most of these names are unfamiliar, but if this flight had not been an overwhelming success, these names would be very familiar to everyone. So I think it is very appropriate that in this success that their work should be acknowledged. And I also want to take cognizance of the fact that this flight was made out in the open with all the possibilities of failure which would have been damaging to our country's prestige. Because of great risk were taken in that regard, it seems to me that we have some right to claim that this open society of ours, which risked much, gained much." End quote. In conclusion, the mission was a technical success even though it did not bring the first man into space. 
It went a long way in alleviating the pressure of the young administration of John Kennedy. Between the launches of Gagarin and Shepard, the president's ill-judged effort to overthrow Fidel Castro in Cuba had gone catastrophically wrong at the Bay of Pigs. The peaceful achievement of the Soviets was being heavily compared to the warmongering of the U.S., but with Shepard, a measure of success was finally achieved, and a plot of the moral high ground secured. The Soviets might have the big rockets, but America had the TV and film crews, and in the battle for prestige, this would provide a powerful advantage. In the words of the London Evening News, they have done it in the fierce light of publicity. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.